Good morning, church. Blessing to hear from Case this morning and then uh, from Bill as well about family and the importance of the Word of God. Today I want to talk to you about the topic out of Hebrews chapter 1 through 3 about paying attention, paying close attention. I'd like to read from you, first of all, a few verses to set the tone for it and invite you to take your Bibles and I'm going to read out of chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4 certain sections of that scripture and keep in mind the idea of why does God tell us to pay close attention. Chapter 1, starting verse 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he spoke to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Then dropping down to verse 8 through verse 12 of chapter 1. God says this about his son. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, in the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you'll remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You'll roll them up like a robe. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you remain the same, and your years will never end. Now to chapter 2, verse 1 through 4. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we've heard, so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Now go to chapter 3, verse 12 through 14. See to it, my brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. And then finally from chapter 4, 12 through 16. The Word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything's uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who's ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, 
so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. God bless the reading of his word. I want to talk to you from those readings I said this morning, from this idea of paying close attention. Paying close attention. Notice it back to chapter 2, verse 1. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we've heard. I want to speak to you, first of all, about the importance of guarding your hearts and minds by paying close attention to what God is telling us. And many times throughout Hebrews, it points out the dangers of not paying close attention. But in a few of these verses I've just read, you'll note several. Look in the very first verse of chapter 2. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we've heard so that we do not drift away from it. There's always the danger of drifting away, right? I love the ocean, love Folly Beach. Our kids love it, grandkids love it, love going there, and we stake out our claim on that little piece of beach we think is our territory and lay out all those tons of stuff you bring down there for some 12-plus people going down there. And then we all hit the ocean, you know, and everyone has their toys everything else. And it's always fascinating to me, particularly in the ocean, you, you set everything there, but after a while, when you're in the ocean with the kids and grandkids, have you noticed how you've ended up over here? And you, know, and you look up and you realize, man, I can't believe I've drifted that far from where the original place was. We get distracted. We're having fun. We're kind of just enjoying the scenes, not paying any attention to where we are. And pretty soon, we've drifted from where we're supposed to be. So we're always out there constantly telling the grandkids, like we did our kids, Where's the fixed point? Where are you supposed to look? And they go, man, I can't believe we've gone that far. You know, it's the same way in our life, isn't it? It's so easy to get distracted. It's so easy to drift away and not pay close attention to what God has called us to pay close attention to. Why, some of you are drifting right now in worship. I mean, how dare Kaysen said you might kind of, <laughs> you know, I'll talk to Kaysen about that later, but, but he's right, right? How easy it is to drift our minds somewhere else, we're not paying close attention. So those very important disciplines or habits that you created over a period of time that keep you close to the Lord, you begin to get distracted, you begin to look away, and pretty soon you've drifted from it, haven't you? You've drifted from it. This year has been very hard on all of us as we were thrown into a new semi-normal, right? But it broke some of those habits. And you all know when a habit's broken, how very hard it is to come back to it. Once a discipline's broken, it takes a long time sometimes to recreate it. So there's members of our congregation, perhaps even yourself right now, you find yourself drifting. So you've got to pay close attention. Where's the fixed point? What are you drifting from? Think about it, your prayer life. How's, how's your prayer life? Are you steady there? Are you fixed on your prayer life? What about communion with God? Why worshiping God? has to be, the Bible says it's a habit, right? To recreate that habit, to get back into that. What about drifting in terms of worship? What about drifting in terms of the Word of God? How are you in the Word of God? And see, those are paying attention to. Am I drifting? And what do you do when you drift? You've got to get back to the fixed point, don't you? Now, we also look in chapter 2, verse 3. It talks about this. How shall we escape... If we ignore so great a salvation, this salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, 
and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. we got to pay close attention that we don't ignore so great a salvation. And would you agree with me the salvation of Jesus Christ is a great salvation? I mean, it's the greatest decision you'll ever make in your life. And it's, it's truth. But we all know something about truth. Truth is not believable just because it's truth. Have you ever told somebody the truth and they don't believe you? Truth is not believable just because it's truth. And truth will not set you free unless you apply it. Truth on its own is truth. It's freedom. Truth is truth. It's to be believable. But we can ignore it, can't we? We can ignore this great salvation. We can ignore the truth of God's word. We can ignore the fact of what God's word is trying to do for us. Even when it's confirmed, when it's announced by the Lord, confirmed by eyewitnesses, the death, burial, resurrection, the life of Jesus, and the ascension of Christ, even when they have eyewitnesses to it, and even when God brought signs, miracles, and wonders around it, pay close attention because truth can be ignored. And people ignore the truth even when they know it's the truth. And they do it for many reasons. They do it for many reasons. We ignore the truth when we don't like the sound doctrine of the Word of God. So we want to change the doctrine. So we, we don't like what it's saying to us. We like what someone popular is saying about it or how someone's changing it around. And so there's always that push by others to, to take the sound doctrine that brings freedom, that is to be believed, and to ignore it or to change it. The doctrine of Jesus says, look, go into all the world and make the disciples of all nations, right? Baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and law be with you at the end of the age. And yet people will always say, well, it doesn't mean what it says. You know, sound doctrine. There's also in the time in which we live where the truth is diluted so we can ignore it. There's many truths, many ways, many roads. And so we can ignore that truth. Just this past week, I was doing some research on the creation narratives in Genesis. So I was going through the different sites that were on there. And one I never use and one I do not allow my students to ever use is Wikipedia. It's just, it's just not a scholarly thing to use, but my eyes were drawn towards it. <clears throat> the creation narrative in Wikipedia, first line said, Bible scholars believe that the Genesis account is a myth. And I went no further in that, because I knew right there, this is a false teaching. But the fact said, Bible scholars treat the Genesis narratives as a myth. And I thought, are there Bible scholars that do that? Absolutely. It's not just the world that treats God's truth as myth, but there are people who call themselves Bible scholars, who have their credentials, that will teach you that the Genesis account is a myth. It's not the truth. Now, those Bible scholars are false teachers. And those Bible scholars are deceptive teachers. And those Bible scholars are masquerading as angels of light, but they're from hell. It's an unfaithful Bible scholar that says that. It's a dis untrustworthy Bible scholar that will tell you that. No faithful Bible scholar will ever tell you that any part of God's word is a myth. 
To ignore such a great salvation, to ignore it, and to call it what it's not, is a sin. And yet that's all throughout our world and just accepted. I remember when you used to go on Wikipedia and you could edit it, remember? Request edits and go in and change it. What do you think the likelihood is, if you could edit it still, that they would change that and put there, false Bible scholars will tell you that the Genesis account is a myth. Now, here's the point. We can dilute the truth and ignore it. We can move away from sound doctrine and ignore it. And we in our own lives can just ignore it because we don't want to believe it. We don't want to be convicted by it. But we cannot ignore when you pay close attention to the message that God has given us. Look in chapter 3, verse 12. Chapter 3, verse 12. Here's another one. See to it, brothers and sisters. Now pay close attention to this. Guard your hearts and minds that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. So what do we got to pay close attention to? to the sins that now dominate us, to the sins that have now mastered our lives, to the sins we no longer repent of. And that unrepentant sin of rebellion, that's what this is here, where you rebel, where you decide that you're going to ignore the truth of God's message. Then when you begin to ignore that, if you don't repent of it, it means you don't believe really what God says about that word, or you ignore it, and you're going to turn away from the living God. So pay very careful attention to your life. And what he wants you to pay attention to and listen up to is, is there a sin right now that's dwelling in you that you're allowing to live in your heart, in your life? And you're saying, well, I'll deal with this some other day. You do realize that you don't deal with sin that way. Sin deals with you when it captures you there and masters you. You can drift from the word. You can ignore God's message. You can turn away from God. Guard your hearts and minds. It continues in verse 14 and 15. Notice, encourage one another as long as it's called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We've come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. So one way is to turn away from it because we are in rebellion. Another way is to be deceived. And rebellion and deception are two different things. If you're in rebellion, you've not been deceived. <laughs> you know what you're doing. But there's also the possibility in each day called today, things within this day, if we don't pay close attention to, can deceive us and lead us into a hardened heart Areas in our life where our hearts have become hardened that creates deceit from the devil, unbelief, and a turning away. You see what I'm saying? Pay close attention to the message that you've heard so that you don't drift away, so that you don't ignore this great salvation, so that you don't turn away, and so you won't harden your heart against it. And believe me, as Jesus said, in every day there's enough worries of its own. Don't worry about tomorrow, right? And in each day that we experience in life, there are things that can either soften our heart and draw us closer to the Lord or things that come into our life on our daily basis that can harden us. Bitterness, jealousy, envy, disappointment, despair, sorrow, anything. 
that can harden that heart away from God and deceive us so that today is no longer a day that you'll listen to God, but that day becomes hardening to what you're hearing from God. Does that make sense? And this, this is what it's talking about here in terms of what our hearts to guard those hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Let's go back to chapter 2, verse 1 again. And let's drop to verse 2. It's also talking about our shaping our will. Pay close attention to what is shaping your will, not just the idea of your heart, but your will. Not my will, but your will be done is what Jesus said to his Father. And we too, Paul says, we're to have our will transformed to have the desire to follow the will of God as well. Pay close attention, therefore, to what we've heard so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just award, how shall we escape or ignore such a great salvation? So here it's talking about how is our will shaped? And it says here in verse 2, through the message. God's word is what shapes our will. And notice that this was spoken, God's word, to us through angels. Think about angels like Gabriel and Michael, the messengers of God. Think about the angels that spoke to Abraham and to Jacob and to Daniel and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Zechariah and Elizabeth, the future parents of John the baptizer and Joseph and Mary and the message of God that was proclaimed to the shepherds in the field. And, and you think about these angels that speak the word of God. In verse 7 of chapter 1, it says that God made those angels. They're created by God. In speaking of the angels, God says, He makes His angels spirits and His servants flames of fire. So the angels not only bring the message of God, but these angels are created by God. And in verse 6, it says, These angels worship Jesus Christ as God. Let all God's angels worship Him. They're referring to Christ. So these angels like Gabriel and Michael and the many, many others that are mentioned in the Bible are created by God. They worship Christ. But also, did you notice that their message in verse 2, their message is binding and every violation and disobedience receives its just punishment? So God has a message for us, pay close attention to it, of reward or what? punishment. If you obey, there's reward. If you disobey, there's punishment. It's a binding judgment. How do we know that? When the angels went to Sodom and Gomorrah with the message from God, was that a binding judgment? Absolutely, right? When the angels went to the Assyrian army, the message of God, and destroyed the Assyrian army, that was binding judgment upon them. In the plagues of Egypt, the angels involved in that particularly the last one during Passover. That was a binding judgment. God did exactly what he would say through his word. Pay careful attention. And the Bible tells you the New Testament, look to the Old Testament, the stories of the Old Testament to remind you that God stays true to his word. The angels that brought this word brought a binding word to Sodom and Gomorrah, to the Assyrian army, to the plagues of Egypt. And in the end times, prior to Christ's return, it's the angels blowing the trumpets. It's the angels bringing the bowls of judgment. It will be the angels that carry out the wrath of God against Satan and the ones who follow after him. Angels 
have the message of God. But then you go to chapter 1, verse 1, and notice not only it's the angels, but notice in the past God spoke to our ancestors through the what? Through the prophets at many times and in various ways. So God used prophets to send his word to us. The prophetic word of God is true, amen? Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Obadiah, Joel, Amos, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Zechariah, all those prophets, Elijah, message from God. God spoke to many different people in many different generations in many different ways. Why well, he even one time spoke to one prophet through a donkey. Remember that? <laughs> he speaks in various ways, right? An iron axe head that could float on the top of the water. Spoke in many various. His angels are servants of fire, bringing fire down from heaven, bringing forth what God has called them to do. And not only that, these angels created by God who worship Jesus, who bring this message from God, these prophets also did the very same thing. And those prophets in many times in various ways spoke those prophecies. And you do realize that every single prophecy has been fulfilled at this point that was promised by God in the prophets. You understand that, right? Which means, which means that every prophet that has yet to be fulfilled in God's word that will be fulfilled will happen, right? You can count on it. His word is binding. His word is true. Don't neglect it. So you have the message of God. Pay close attention to it. It's from angels. It's from prophets. But I want you to notice in chapter 1, verse 2, in these last days, are we in the last days? Yes. In these times, he has spoke to us by whom? His son, whom he appointed heir of all things, Heir of all things. He has spoken to us now through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the eternal word. He's the embodiment of the word of God. He is the eternal word in whom he's appointed heir of all things. When do we get our inheritance, folks? In heaven, right? It's eternal promise, isn't it? You know who's there to be a co-heir with us? Jesus. All those who call God Abba, Father, will be heirs with Christ, join heirs with Christ, right? This is the eternal word of God spoke to us. There is no other way. There's no other plan of salvation. There's no one like him, none greater than him. He is the eternal word. He is the creative word. Looking once again in chapter 1, verse 2. In these last days he spoke to us by a son whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also made the universe. Who made the universe? God created, right? Through whom? Jesus Christ. Look in verse 10. It says it again. In the beginning, Lord, that's referring to Jesus there, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. Who created the universe? God created the universe. That's the truth. Spoke to us. Jesus himself says this. He's the eternal word. He's the creative word. If you want to find out more about that, you can turn to Colossians chapter 1, 14 and following, and talks about how all that transpires through Jesus Christ, the eternal word, the creative word. If anyone tells you otherwise, that God's not the creator, you got the wrong messenger and the wrong message. 
It's the wrong message. The real message is this. Who created everything? Who created everything? God. Through Jesus Christ. Not only that, look at how he's a sustainer. The sun is the radiance of God's glory, verse 3. And the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. He's the one that holds all things together. Stands to reason if he made it, right? That he holds it together. Not only that, in verse 11 of chapter 1, everything's going to perish, but you remain. They'll all wear out like a garment. You're the one that will roll them up like a robe, like a garment they will be changed. But you'll remain the same and your years will never end. What holds all this together? Why don't the planets go spinning out of control? The stars fall from the sky. How can we stay on this earth? How does everything happen? We're not nine years away from the destruction of this earth because some people say so. This, this world will end when Jesus says so. We didn't create this world. It didn't happen by accident. That's the myth. We were created by God in his image. He created this universe in which we live, spoken to us by the angels, by the prophets, by Jesus, who's the eternal word, the creative word, the sustaining word, and continuing in chapter 1, he's the saving word. Look at this. After he provided purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, and so he became as much superior to the angels as the name he's inherited is superior to theirs. He becomes a saving word, salvation. How are we made purified from our sins? By Jesus Christ, his powerful word. And when he provided that purification by dying for us on the cross, he sat down at the right hand of majesty in heaven so that he became more superior to the angels here on earth. How did he do that? Well, look in chapter 2 and look in verse 9. Jesus was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. Where was that death? Where did that occur? On the cross. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Amen? It's a saving word that's there. Not only that, it's a just word. Go back to chapter 1, verse 8. Here's what it says about Jesus and his throne. Your throne, O God, notice Jesus is called God again, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your righteousness. You've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with oil and joy. Oil and joy. And I'll say something else about Jesus. He is the final word. There is no plan B. There is no plan C. And there's no other name except Jesus Christ. And there's no other word except Jesus Christ. No other way. No other plan. The message was spoken by the angels regarding that. Spoken to us by the prophets regarding that. And Jesus himself spoke that word to us. The eternal word, the creative word, the sustaining word, the saving word, the just word, the final word. So what do we do with that? What do we do with that? Well, here's our response. Pay careful attention to it. 
so that you will remain faithful to that. Don't ignore it. Don't drift from it. Don't rebel from it. Don't be deceived by anything else. Keep your hearts and mind faithful to Jesus Christ. Be faithful to him. That's what it's saying in chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. You pay careful attention to what the message is to understand that disobedience will be punished, but obedience will be rewarded. Not only that, look in chapter 2, verse 8 through 9. You have the hope. At the present time, we don't see this happening. It doesn't look like everything's subjected to our eternal ruler. But the time's coming, and we'll see that. That's what it says in chapter 2, verse 8 through 9. Our hope is in the Lord. Then look in chapter 3, verse 1. What do we need to do? Here he is again. Brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling. Are you part of the heavenly calling? Amen. Is that your calling? Yes or no? It is. If you are partakers of that, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. Don't drift your eyes away from Jesus. Don't ignore the salvation Jesus gives you. Don't rebel against Jesus. Be saved in Jesus Christ. And today, listen to his voice. Hear what he has to say. It's this eternal word. Put your thoughts on him. Obey him in your will. Keep your hope in him. Notice in verse 6, notice what it says again, to hold firmly to what it's saying. For every, um, hold firm. But Christ is faithful as a son of, over God's house, and we are his house. If indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory, I hope today's worship has helped to firm your confidence and your hope in which we glory. Don't drift from that. And then one other in verse 13, here's what we do. We have to encourage others. Encourage others. Notice, today, encourage one another so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. I think it's interesting that throughout the Hebrew letter, it says, encourage one another. Do you realize we're accountable to each other? That we're to encourage one another, to spur one another on towards good works? That you need to look at the people that are missing next to you that have drifted or ignored it or for whatever reason and you need to get hold of them and contact them and encourage them to be obedient, to put their hope back in Christ, to not fear what's going on in the world, to fix their thoughts once again on Jesus, to no longer be distracted what's going on in the world, to hold firmly to their confidence and faith, to encourage others. When you encourage others, it encourages you as well. Amen? So let's all decide today, and I hope you're with me, that we're going to pay close attention to what God has given us. Please don't drift from it. Please don't ignore it. Please don't rebel against it. Please don't turn away from God. I know sometimes you can get discouraged. Sometimes life can be overwhelming. Get your eyes back on Jesus, all right? If you give in to your discouragement, you give in to your anxiety, you give in to your fears, you realize you create more anxieties, more fears, and more troubles for you. It will not get you out of it. So you have to get your eyes off your situation and put them where they belong. In Jesus Christ, your eternal word, Lord and Savior, forever and ever. Amen. This morning, if you need to respond to the Lord's invitation anyway, we offer this invitation and we hope you'll accept it as together we stand and sing this next song.